Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Jeet here. Jesse Brown. (laughs) Jeet here, you're a senior editor at the New Republic magazine. That is my title, although I prefer to be known as a clown with a Twitter account. Jeet, today we're going to talk about this Sachi Cole business. Yes. We're going to talk about the Canadian music industry and the funding thereof. And we're going to talk about whether or not the media should be reporting on suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Candleland Shortcuts. Great to be here. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Matthew Fox, Maureen Charlotte Riley, Michael Warren, Megan Walker, Kristen Theodore, Evan O'Donnell, Stephen Bodzin, and Kelly Law. Kelly, why did you decide to be awesome? Because you're not Rex Murphy and you're not the CBC. This episode is also brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Jeet, I've spoken before about Casper. They sent me a mattress. It's the best mattress I've ever had. I don't mind telling you that. Sleep is important. They have cut out the middleman of these massive mattress showrooms, which you pay for when you buy a mattress. You also spare yourself the indignity of lying down as a full-grown man in your clothes on a mattress in a big, brightly lit room, pretending to know that this was the mattress. No, there is one mattress that suits most people. I will tell you something I like best about my Casper mattress. I have little children. I know you have little children. 
they jump into bed with us. They disturb us at any hour. That's what they do. When I had a spring mattress beforehand, it was like a catapult effect. Like I could feel what was happening on the other end of the mattress on a corner. Yes. It would wake me up. And this combination of latex and memory foam, it isolates the movement. So I'm just getting better sleep than ever. An obsessively designed mattress cheat, shockingly fair price. $7.25 for a twin mattress from Casper. They just ship these things to your house and you try it out. And if you don't like it, you send it back. Go to casper.com slash Canada land and you will get $50 off of any mattress. Check it out. Casper.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Today, I guess we're going to take a look at this little piece here that shows us that it's okay to discriminate as long as you are discriminating against the right race and the right gender. BuzzFeed Canada is looking for writers. White males need not apply. This old little thing right here is so shitty. It's just like, if you're a white man upset that we are looking mostly for non-white, non-men like me, I don't care about you. Go write for McLean's. I don't even know. I couldn't find out who McLean's was. That doesn't say... Hey, you know, Mr. Aboriginal, you know, we know that you have not been heard from enough in the media and your voice is not heard. We'd like to hear from you. No, the target of the sentence is not white, not male. This isn't an inviting statement to people of color. It's a statement of aggression against people who are white and male. Those are some white men. Jeet, talking about Sachi Cole. I, I've noticed that white men can be vocal. <laughs> 
I would prefer that Sachi Cole was here talking with us about Sachi Cole, but she's left Twitter and she's taking a little break from this topic. Which I don't blame her for, considering not just the sort of feedback that she's gotten, but the real genuine harassment that she's gotten on Twitter and elsewhere. Yeah, I make no judgment about her decision, though I think it's just like terribly unfortunate because Sachi is very funny on Twitter. I miss her on Twitter. <laughs> to give a quick summary of what happened, Sachi who's been on the show a bunch of times and is a writer and editor, I believe, for BuzzFeed, was soliciting freelance pitches on Twitter. And she wrote, would you like to write long form for BuzzFeed Canada? Well, you can. We want pitches for your Canada-centric essays and reporting. Then she continued, BuzzFeed Canada would particularly like to hear from you if you are not white and not male. Later in her numbered Twitter essay, I wonder where she got that idea from. Later she said, last thing in all caps... If you're a white man upset that we are looking mostly for non-white men, I don't care about you. Go write for McLean's. Now, Jeet, I am a white man who wrote for McLean's. And I will admit that when I first read these tweets by Saatchi, my gut reaction was, hey, you're discriminating. You're discriminating against me. That's not fair. That's not nice. I did have that feeling. That's an interesting thing. I mean, I think... This is a story about race, but it's also a story about humor. And there's this terrible myth that Canadians are funny. I mean, there are Canadians who are funny, but usually they're in like Los Angeles yeah. for a reason. We have something called the Stephen Leacock Award for humor, which goes to the Vinyl Cafe, which is like the pinnacle of Canadian humor. Canada is a country where the Walrus magazine is allowed to have humor as long as it's educational and not gratuitous. So this is a country that has a tone deaf problem with humor. Now, I feel terrible about things this because as the great philosopher Leo Strauss said, he talked about the sort of tired and laborious business of having to explain a joke. Yeah, let's kill, uh, <laughs> let's kill the joke. But, <laughs> but, 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 but she wasn't joking, right? I mean, but, she, like, but, no, no, no. The, the initial pitch, which is we would particularly like to hear from you if you're non-white, non-male, and then the all caps, which for the humorly impaired is perhaps a tell, then saying, go right for McLean's. What type of humor is as I work here? Eddie Murphy once did a sketch called White Like Me, yeah. uh, where he put on makeup to be white, and then suddenly found out everybody was giving him money. He could ride on the bus for free. Uh, Classic Saturday Night Live bit where uh, once the last black person gets off the bus and it's just white people that go like, finally, let's have a party. And he, he sees the secret world of white people. That's right. Now, there are people who will look at that and say, like, that's white face. How can Eddie Murphy do a skit about white people? making fun of white culture. When blackface is completely blackface off limits. Is, is off limit. And again, this is such a tiresome business, but it's in the context in which blackface has existed forever as a form of racial oppression to like belittle black people. And what Murphy is doing is taking that and inverting it because that's what you often do with humor. So I feel like what Cole is doing here is she's talking about white people the way that structurally, not always overtly, but structurally, society deals with non-white people, uh, often also with women. So she's like making a joke. One might take offense at a joke, especially if you're the butt of a joke. You know, I could watch Apu on The Simpsons and think, hey, they're making fun of like South Asians. He has an accent. But I, I, I tend to think like as a brown person, you're kind of get used to the fact that sometimes you're the butt of jokes. Part of the story is that white people are not used to being the butt of humor. 
Yeah, well, there's two parts to this that I see. There's the serious part and there's the funny part. Sachi's tone is satiric. It's an in-your-face kind of shock comedy. Yeah. She is yelling. It's exaggerated. Yeah. I find her very funny, which then go right for McLean's. Well, that's true about McLean's. Yeah. And it actually did take me a second read to be like, oh, she actually didn't say we're not going to hire you if you're yeah. white and male. She said, we're mostly looking for this. We're showing preference to this kind of content. We're particularly interested even. Particularly like, interested, so, 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 which I, is fine. And by the way, perfectly legal. And also something that we do here, and not for any high mind purpose, but merely because we want to make the best content here for the most people we possibly can. And both in terms of representing people, I want to have different diverse voices and represent different people. And also because I'm just bored. What is a white guy's take on this? I think I know it. And there's so many people who live around me and I don't know what they have to say about things. That's why we look for those perspectives. So we do exactly what Sachi is doing there. We try to find people who you don't usually hear from because we're trying to differentiate our product. So there's really no problem there with the actual practical things she's doing. And she's not joking. She is looking for those people. The way she said it, put people on edge in a way that I found very disingenuous. Because once I got over my sense of like, hey, I'm not used to being singled out in that way, I realized- It kind of hurts to be laughed at, doesn't it, Jesse? It's maybe okay (laughs) to feel that for a second. And all the people who are so angry with her, I don't buy their anger because it's not like we were hearing from a lot of white male writers who are saying, hey, I can't get a break in this business. Mm -hmm. We were hearing from other people who are kind of like phony outrage on behalf of these people who Sachi is excluding. Yeah, no, and there's a kind of phony Twitter outrage, which is very easy to fall into. And like I occasionally do, like it's very easy on social media not to read people generously. They like to make the worst possible assumptions about someone's tweet and then to attack that worst assumption. So there's that. But I I think there's like a larger structural thing, which I really want to emphasize. She made these comments in the context of an industry that is very, very, very white. That's no joke. This is what you're saying. This is what you said on Twitter, that this is an incredibly Canadian media in particular. Canadian media in particular. If you talk to black writers in America, they'll say it's not great, but it's nothing like here in Canada. Like the only places in Canadian society where like I'm usually the only non-white person is in media circles. You go to the the National Magazine Awards, it's like a country club in Georgia in the uh, (laughs) 1950s, except that that country club would actually have some black servants. A racist country club has probably created more jobs for black people than the Canadian media has. Wow. Okay, so you wrote that and I thought about it and that passed the smell test for me in terms of like what... What I've experienced working for different organizations and being at these industry events, that seemed right to me. It definitely is one of these things where you could kind of look at every organization and, oh, no, they've given a column to so-and-so. They've had so-and-so on the air. But there's a big disparity between who they give a column to and who's on the air and who's actually like an editor or producer who's running things. If you're talking about like staff jobs and particularly like senior staff jobs at the editorial level, is very white male. So you were challenged on this because though that felt true to me, people said, do we have any statistics to back this up? And then somebody else said... This is a job for Canadaland. Canadaland, you need to go and actually do some research and report on diversity in the Canadian media. And as it happened, we have been trying to do that for a couple of months mm-hmm. now. Vicky Machama has been working on a piece for us. The piece is coming out in the days ahead, but no time like the present to get a little bit of insight into what she's experienced here. Vicky, you're here to tell us about a piece of journalism that you're doing? Yes. Yeah, so in Hold on a second. I've read Heather Malik. I thought you were our satire writer. You're blowing my mind. Are you allowed to do two things? <laughs> well, I am writing about diversity in Canadian media, so it is a humor column still. Okay, right. <laughs> so just dumb luck that this all blew up to the forefront while you were working on this piece? Good luck, bad luck? I don't know, but tell us a little bit about what you've been asking the different newsrooms in Canada. So we reached out to 
about 20 of the editors of the largest newsrooms in Canada, and we're asking them to fill out a survey about the diversity that they have in their newsroom, how many people they've hired, how many people are on staff, and how many people come from a variety of backgrounds. What'd you find? We found so far that nobody wants to answer these questions. I wonder why. You sent this to 13 news organizations? 17. How many gave you that data? Three. Did you get any response at all from the remaining 14 news organizations as to why they wouldn't tell you? After repeated requests, over 10 didn't answer or respond at all. Those who did said, oh, we don't have the time. Some said, we don't have the numbers. That's not something we keep track of at all. Is this something that is kept track of in other countries? Yeah. So actually, this is shockingly Canadian to not keep track of these numbers. In the United States, the American Society of Newspaper Editors asks every single newspaper to fill out this information. And those newspapers do. And then they track those numbers against local diversity. Just to see how representative the media is to their local population. Yeah. And in the United Kingdom, they're very good about keeping track of this. The press councils require them to do it. And the BBC is proud to lead on diversity. I feel like it's almost like this weird thing where people say like, oh, we're, we're colorblind. We don't pay attention to such things, which kind of gets you off the hook for having to be accountable for whether or not you're actually hiring in an equitable way. Well, saying that you're colorblind or you're saying that you have these policies around being equitable is just a way of masking racism. It gives people a lot of license to be racist because they say, well, officially on paper, this is how we are. But if you walk into their rooms, you can just tell that's not what you're doing. You're not hiring in an equitable way. You're not fulfilling on your policies and you're not being colorblind. That's not how you're assigning work. I know that you didn't stop there just on the basis of people not giving you the information. You have been compiling information about what is in plain sight, just in terms of the political shows. You can have a look at who's on those shows and who's talking and you you can figure out how they're doing on the diversity front. Let's not talk about that yet because the piece is still forthcoming. And as much as Vicky is able to actually quantify this stuff, we're going to be telling you everything that we could find. Yeah, I think it's a great conversation to have in public. But if we're going to have this conversation, I think it's useful for the public to have some numbers to get an understanding. So it's not just media talking about what we already know. It's about giving the public some context for this conversation. Thanks, Vicky. Jeet, the last thing I want to ask you about this Saatchi thing is, is it a story or a non-story? I feel like it's beyond just the response to Saatchi and the way that a opinionated funny woman gets responded to. It's beyond even this question of diversity in the Canadian media. The way that this snowballed and you had a certain voice from Reddit, you had this site media idea. It wasn't just people getting so upset with Saatchi. It felt like there were some bases of thought that there were kind of like armies of people who were not usually part of this little insular Canadian media conversation saying, aha, anti-white racism is seizing upon it. And I feel like it kind of told us something about the state of Canada and just what are the forbidden topics. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think there's a pre-existing right-wing culture that you see in things like Gamergate and the men's rights movement that's looking for a fight and is like looking for like some proof of their view of the world and it's easy on on these tweets. But I think that the Canadian media has a huge diversity problem. Problem. And I think that that problem is not going to get solved because it's a sort of industry in transformative decline. So if you have like an in- industry that is predominantly white male in terms of positions of power and that industry is also contracting, it's hard for me to see how there's going to be diversity in the future. Not with the struggling, diminishing legacy organizations. I think we're getting to a place where for years it was okay to say, yeah, we're interested in diversity. We're interested in it as a, as a concept. Yeah. But when there's fewer resources than ever, fewer yeah. jobs than ever, and the idea of inclusion and diversity actually means like you might have to give up something that you have, yeah. then I think that they're less likely than ever to actually share. And we're seeing that defensiveness in the strategy thing. And this is like a very unpopular thing I've said. But if you're like a working class white person, person of color, 
or like a woman that doesn't have a wealthy husband, then you shouldn't join the Canadian media. The Canadian media is increasingly going to become a hobby for the idle rich. And uh, That's what John Kay told me. You're on the same page as John Kay. Well, yeah, but I, I don't think it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think John, right, yeah, right. Yeah. There's some light in between those. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. I, I, I feel like it has to be, we have to highlight this fact so that there's some sort of structural change that's made in place. John doesn't believe that there's solutions. But here's the thing about that. When you said that you would not encourage any person of color or woman to enter the Canadian media, people jumped down your throat and said, do not listen to this man. Do not listen to this man. I think you're absolutely right, but I would just extend that to say that nobody should enter the Canadian media. Well, unless you're, no, I, 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 well, I, if you're independently wealthy, it's Right, fine. yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're John Kay and th- this, there's a <laughs> career path for you because you're, you'll always have a safety net of family wealth. Right. Uh, but I mean- and If you're uh, looking for a career- yeah, If your father was the you know head of the Bank of Canada, then the Canadian media is for you. <laughs> no, I, you know what? I, I couldn't disagree with you more. I think that you're bashing your head against a wall to try to get a career in the established Canadian media. Bad idea. But if you want to set out and actually try to do something new, it's wide open, man. Oh, sure, sure. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but by Canadian media, I mean, you know, the the institution. as we know it. As we know it. The newer social uh, media is more open to diversity precisely because they're not embedded in these structures. But you have to understand that this is not a career as the career path that's usually been open to journalists. I think we have to be kind of like clear about that. And I think we have to be clear about what's happening with these large media institutions that as they're in terminal decline, they're really increasingly committed to the readership that they have and really doubling down on that. So like if you look at Post Media, they're not looking for new readers. They want to hold on to each of those angry old white readers who wants to read about how terrible affirmative action is. You know, and then get The Global Mail and, has been explicit about this. Yeah. Asked who your reader is. They say they make over $100,000 a year and they're trying to buy a luxury car. Yeah, I, I mean, I live in Rexdale and it's a sort of working class immigrant area and you cannot buy the Global Mail there. Or you, I think there's one store that sells it, but you have to make a real effort because the Global Mail is not interested in my diverse working class neighborhood. So if they're interested in those sort of like older, predominantly white readers, then they're creating the perfect content by having people like Jeffrey Simpson and Margaret Wente tell old white people that young people are ruining the world. And therein lies the opportunity for everybody else. It is another sad day for Senator Patrick Brazo. The former conservative is recovering from surgery in a Quebec hospital today after police were called to his home late last night. Brazo was taken to hospital by ambulance, but his condition is not known this morning. Police were called to the home around 10 p.m., but say there was no evidence that a crime had been committed. We're going to bring you more details on this story as soon as they become available. Those details became available. Glenn McGregor, in his first story, Glenn was just on the show as he was leaving the Ottawa Citizen. Turns out he went to CTV. His first story for CTV was on Senator Patrick Brazo. He tried to kill himself. Yes. And Glenn reported on this second suicide attempt from Senator Patrick Brazo and took some heat online. And that made me think about this because we have some established rules about reporting on suicide. Typically, we don't do it if somebody jumps in front of a subway train or something. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of stories don't make it on the news for a bunch of reasons, including copycats. These things tend to happen in waves. Andrew Lawton, a radio host, was on Twitter just really calling out Glenn for this, saying this is disgusting, being very frank about his own suicide attempt and saying, I spoke about that publicly when I was good and damn ready. You don't shame people for trying to kill themselves. Glenn responded to say that Brazo knew in advance that Glenn was reporting that it was a suicide attempt and that the Senator Brazo was okay with it being reported. That's what Glenn McGregor says. What do you think? Should we be talking about this kind of stuff in the news? 
The um, issue of consent, I think, is the key. If someone has tried to kill themselves or has suicidal thoughts and they want to talk about it, I'm okay with it. I think where this becomes an issue is if this information was released. And looking at the original report, I wasn't clear on that. It said CTV has learned. Yeah, there was nothing in there about Brazil being okay with this being reported. Yeah, like I thought like, where did this information come from? They come from the person himself and how did Brazil feel? But I mean, even beyond that, even if the person says it's okay to do a story, then you have to kind of frame the story in a way that won't lead to imitation. And I, I didn't feel like the story, as I saw it, was sensitive in that way. I got to tell you, I don't know that I agree with you on any of that. This is a legislator at the federal level. Sure. Okay. So if we can't report on the news about the people who make the laws in this country, I don't know what the news is about. So just for the purpose of taking this argument to its logical extreme, are you saying that if the prime minister had repeated attempts on his own life and didn't want that reported, the media should just bury that story? It depends on this newsworthiness. And That's pretty goddamn newsworthy. No, 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 but I mean, the, the prime minister, sure. I, I, I think so then we get to a point of like, oh, yeah. who's the more important Well, I mean, okay, okay. John Roberts, the former uh, premier of Ontario, he killed himself. At the time, I remember it was just reported that he had died. People who knew the family knew what happened, but it was only years later that this was discussed that he had killed himself. And I think that was- See, that, th- that bugs me as a journalist. I mean, like, shouldn't the public know that? I mean, isn't that the job to tell people things like that? What's the value of that piece of information? What is the value of that piece of information? I mean, first of all, like... I mean, even if he had been blackmailed, then he killed himself to avoid embarrassment. Like, that's a newsworthy thing. But I mean, what's, what's the value? <sighs> I think I would mount a defense in just the public's right to know somebody who has power over our lives and our laws is suddenly dead. I mean, I won't speculate on Senator Brazo's reasons for his suicide mm. attempt, but he is embroiled in quite a bit of controversy right now yeah. that is very much potentially linked to his public life. Mm-hmm. The consequences of a suicide attempt or suicide is going to be impactful on the public. To withhold the information that that had happened just feels contrary to me to the purpose of news journalism, mm. to inform people about what's happening in, in public life. Do we know that, that this was connected to... No. No. I feel like this is clearly like a troubled individual. Yeah. And I think... If you have people going through that trouble, there's some discretion that can be exercised. I was glad when Glenn tweeted that Senator Brazil was okay with this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the consent issue does kind of matter, right? Well, it made me feel less icky about it, but I'll defend even journalism that makes me feel icky, and, I, and I'll defend journalists who are in the business of reporting on on icky. Like, I'm glad that I don't have to do that kind of reporting, but I think I would defend people who are in the position of having to tell the public about that sort of stuff and having to stick microphones in the faces of people who've suffered But But it's never the case that the media reports everything that they know. I mean, I'll give you like a very concrete example. A friend of mine once found another friend who was murdered. She hadn't heard from her friend in a while. She went to the house, looked in, and the friend had been murdered. Now, when it was reported in the media... It wasn't reported that my friend had found the body uh-huh. because they didn't know who the killer was. The killer was still out there. And it was just like reported that the body had been found by Right. You parents. wouldn't put her at risk by yeah, reporting yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying everything that we know the public needs to know. Well, also there's, there are rules for like discretion. Like, like, yes. So like in the case of someone committing suicide, if that could bring further harm on them, I, I think those are like legitimate things that have to be weighed. Like I don't think- I think they need to be weighed. I think that every but, sensitivity, so every precaution, I think that the choice of language is all very important. All of this needs to be considered. And then I think you got to report it. No, but you never report the full truth. 
you, you always have some sort of framing or some sort of decision of what is newsworthy and what is not. And in this case, because of who Barzo is and all the things he's embroiled in, I think there is actually a more plausible argument. But by John Roberts, I mean, he had been a former premier. He hadn't been like in office for a long time. Yeah, I know. I see he's what you're a, saying. He's, he's he wasn't old, currently in office. Yeah, he's, he's yeah, an old man. Yeah. So what's the harm of you knowing that now as you do and everyone hearing that now? I think just his legacy and his family's dignity and his family's dignity was a big thing like i think his family for whatever reason might not have wanted that uh, out there they they might not have wanted him at this moment of death to be talking about oh he's a suicide rather than what he was when he was alive i can imagine an argument where people would say that then the media is complicit in the stigmatization of mental illness and whatnot but uh, yeah yeah but it's a family decision and my presumption is to like you know respect the dignity and wishes of the people that are most affected by this unless there's some sort of newsworthy element that really outweighs it, as in your example of the prime minister was trying to kill himself. I, th- I think it's a false thing to say that any piece of information the media has that's true should be reported. No, no one's saying that. So there has to be some rule. And newsworthiness is an important rule, but it has to be weighed against these issues of discretion and respect for people's privacy. All right, G, we lightened it up a little bit. Finally played some CanCon <laughs> on Canada Land. Those are some acts that received funding from the Ontario Media Development Corporation. And we know that they got some of that money because they said so on their own videos. And that's the only way that we know because the OMDC themselves, who are giving out $30 million in money to musicians, to labels, to festivals, to the music industry, won't disclose who's getting this money and for what. All we know is the name of the organization. So we know that $1.2 million was given to Universal Music Canada and that Sony Music and other big multinational music companies got on average over $800,000 each. And then Canadian labels got on average, the ones that got anything, got $160,000. And Michael Geist, the internet law professor at uh, University of Ottawa, asked them, come on, we need to know what you're spending this money on. And they said, okay, the freedom of information request can be fulfilled if you give us like $11,000. So he had to take this to the information and privacy commissioner who said, no, 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 that's ridiculous. They got it down to like two or 3,000. They sent him the documents fully redacted, just black blocks. They would not tell him who's getting this money. What he was able to determine is that even though the government has claimed that this created 2,000 jobs, the documentation only revealed evidence of 263 new jobs. And the other thing he learned is that recipients only reported spending million of this investment, which at the time was less than half of what the provincial government put in. So this is not a question about whether we should provide funding to the arts. This is a long overdue question about where that money goes and the lack of transparency in the funding bodies. And here we have Geist. He's not actually a journalist breaking a scoop in the Toronto Star. And the scoop is merely this crazy level of secrecy where they just won't tell him anything about it. And the government says, yeah, we're with the OMDC on this. And this isn't just Ontario. There's $15 million that was distributed in BC to musicians. And now with the new government, they're going to give the CBC more money. Like, I think that there's no time like the present to just demand a bit more transparency or a lot more transparency for those of us who actually think that it's okay that some of our tax money goes to arts. Oh, yeah, I know. I think the transparency issue is like really the key one here. <laughs> this is the money that comes from the people of Canada. So we should know where it's being spent. To me, it's banana pants that you would give away that much money and people whose money it is 
don't know about it. I think the other issue, which we can't even figure out because of the transparency issue, is how arts funding is organized. From what I can read between the lines, this is part of like a longstanding government policy, I think going back to the Moroni era, of trying to fund infrastructure rather than artists. Yeah. That the, the, the idea is that- The Junos you, get the money, the festivals get the money, the labels get the money. Yeah. That seems to be what's at work, and it becomes a bit troubling because as far as I can tell, these are sort of like international labels, right? Getting so, a lot more money than our homegrown labels. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So once we know where the money is spent, like if once we actually get the unredacted documents, then we can have this other second question, like, is this a wise policy? And I, I can see somebody making a defense for that, saying like infrastructure spending is a lot better than giving money directly to artists. We can have that argument. When we, we know can, the facts. When we have the facts, yeah. You know me. I'm a trusting guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like to assume that everyone's on good faith here. <laughs> if they're redacting all this information, I'm sure they have reasons. But maybe, maybe in the music industry, it's possible that most of that money isn't going to musicians. Oh, I'm and, a, and maybe the people who are getting that money, just maybe, would rather we not talk about it. That's a distinct uh, possibility, <laughs> which I would not bet against. Yeah. I know that Michael Geist has an appeal in to get that information. I think it's pretty rare for people to willfully incriminate themselves, to actually cough up documentation that shows that they've been doing something that maybe they shouldn't be doing. I'm not saying that that's the case in this case, but I think that we're only going to get this information if they have to give it. And there needs to be a hue and cry from the arts communities on the level of artists that there's a demand that arts funding be better accounted for. Yeah, no, I think that's true. But also, I mean, it is curious that it's a professor that's doing this. I think this is a very juicy story. I think it'd be worthwhile for news outlets to get behind this and to try to like... Well, it is make, a juicy story and it's one that we're really interested in. So if yeah, anybody yeah. has anything that we should know about, you can reach us at editor at canadalandshow.com. Jeet here, thank you. Thank you, Jesse. That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me always at jesse at canadalandshow.com. And we are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Jeet, where can people find you? I'm right for the New Republic, which is a very fine publication. And uh, I'm on Twitter where I occasionally chime in. You can also see Jeet tonight. If you're listening to this on Thursday, tonight he's going to join us at Canada Land at the movies, 7 p.m. at the Review Cinema on Roncesvalles. We are watching Shattered Glass with Robin Doolittle. Come check it out. Our website is at canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash canadaland. The next episode of Canadaland will be up on Monday. The next episode of Canadaland Commons will be up on Tuesday. This show is produced by Kevin Sexton. If you like the work that we do, please support us. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.